Let me invite you to turn to Acts chapter 4. Well, you may be wondering, uh, if, you're, if you haven't been here for a few weeks, what the chairs are for. Uh, I'm not going to do any, you know, like acrobatic uh, chair standing or handstands or anything like that. They go, they're, they're basically an illustration of the church. Now, just not just our church, but our series on Acts is covering the church as a whole. What did the early church do? What did they learn? How did they... Uh, how did they grow? And just a quick little review, and those of you who were at the training yesterday for chair discipling, uh, I, hopefully this is starting to come a little faster. For some, it was a review of some things that we've been working on for a number of years. For others, it was brand new material. But the first chair is labeled as what? Who can help me out here? Starts with a C. Come. Just Come. Come, come and see who Jesus is. Come, come and consider following him. So that, that might be you this morning. Maybe you've been coming to our church for a while, or, or, or this is your first time, or uh, you've, you've kind of been thinking about who Jesus is. We are glad you're here, because that's how everyone starts to consider Jesus. Just, just come. Come and listen. Whether you grew up in a Christian home, or like me, who didn't, that eventually was invited to a youth group Bible study, and I came, and I sat, and I listened, and I began to think about who this Jesus was. Now, to a certain degree, I believed in him, but I didn't really understand all that he had done for me. And once I did, and once a person realizes Jesus has died for all of your sins, past, present, and future, he offers to you a gift of salvation, nothing you can earn or deserve, the gift of eternal life, not just a ticket to heaven, but a, a change of life now, a, a, a new life in Christ. At some point, then, you choose to follow. So come, and then you follow, and you begin the process of following Jesus, learning more about him, learning to walk with him, become like him, studying the Bible, worshiping, praying, all the things that, kind of the to-do things that we do as, as followers of Christ. But eventually, we, people are called then to go. Go and become fishers of people so that more will come, and see, and come and hear, and consider following, but also come and bear fruit. And the bear fruit, this go and, go and uh, fish, and go and bear fruit, bear fruit is the idea of that then the vision expands to, okay, I came to cry, I came and I heard and I saw, I chose to follow, then I became a fisher of men. I began to realize I had lots of friends and family and acquaintances, people I knew all over the place because this is a mission field we're living in. We may not think of it that way, but God sees it that way. And he's put you here and us here for a reason in his overall divine purpose of building his church, his people. He's put us here for a reason. And that is to contact people, to have relationships with people that don't know Jesus so that they might come. They might come and hear. They might come and follow. From follow, they become fishers of men. And then their vision gets big enough where they realize, I want to start helping people catch what I caught and reproduce in myself. I want to start my own little family, in a sense. Come, follow, go. Now, why are those words important? And why is it important for the study of the book of Acts? Because the apostles were trained to do that. Jesus modeled that throughout his ministry. If you were to go back and read the book of Luke, the same author of the Acts that we're reading now, there would be times when Jesus would just say, come and see. 
Come and see. Come and see what I'm all about. Think about who I am. Consider my, my uh, destiny. Consider what the prophet said hundreds of years before I showed up. For example, Micah would say that the Savior would be born in a little town called Bethlehem. That's where Jesus was born. The Star of David. Come and see. Then at some point, come and follow and so forth and so forth. And so the, the disciples were trained in this very simple way of, of growing the church. And here we are some 2,000 plus years later because somebody loved you enough and realized you start in this chair, which the Bible also calls lost. Lost without Jesus. Does not have eternal life. Does not have a future with the Lord. Lost wondering what life is about at times. Lost wondering, what is, is there a heaven? How do I get there? And we as followers of Christ have the answer. So we want to do everything we can to present that answer to those people, whether it's a one-on-one conversation or a church service or a, uh, any other event we may do, so that they might follow. And that's what the disciples did over and over and over and over and over and throughout church history. Now, it hasn't always been done well, but... Somebody figured that out a little over 100 years ago here, because we just celebrated our 100th anniversary in the fall, and churches don't last that long unless they somehow figure out a way to make disciples. So yesterday was kind of a tune-up. It was a reminder for those who had had some of this training before and those that were new to it to say, if we're going to continue to make disciples at Chapter Mennonite Brethren Church the way Jesus wants us to, we need a simple formula, and we want to continue to commit to that day after day, year after year, so that God might find us faithful, that he might use us to continue to build his body, the church. Well, we are up to chapter 4 of Acts. That was just the introduction. (laughs) We see in Acts chapter 1 where Jesus, after being on earth for 40 days after his resurrection, that first fruits, as the Bible would call it in the Old Testament, that Sunday following Passover, the day of atonement where he atoned for the sins of the world, where he died according to the scriptures to pay for the sins of the world, just as a sacrifice for hundreds of years before that had symbolized that coming once and for all sacrifice that the book of Hebrews talks about. Jesus did that. He was in a tomb three days. He rose on Sunday. The first fruits offering, the first fruits, in other words, the beginning of the harvest of the resurrection, Jesus was the first. For 40 days then, he gave proof of his resurrection. He walked, he talked, he ate, he appeared, he touched, he did all the things that proved to those early disciples, over 500 of them eventually, that he was alive. And after 40 days, he ascended back to heaven. And then 10 days later, after they had chosen someone to replace Judas in chapter 1, the Holy Spirit comes on that 50th day, the day of Pentecost. Last week, I think I said that the Holy Spirit came 50 days after Jesus ascended. And you might be thinking, whoa, that's a little too long, Pastor Pat. Yeah, I got my numbers confused. So anyway, I apologize for that. I wasn't trying to teach false doctrine. I think I was just a little shaken because I couldn't find my Bible when church was starting. Anyway, so the Holy Spirit comes on the day of Pentecost. Why does the Holy Spirit come? Why do we need the Holy Spirit? Because we need the power of the Lord himself to be the witnesses that God has called us to live. You and I cannot live the Christian life on our own. We can't and we won't and we wouldn't. It takes the Holy Spirit himself, God himself, the advocate, the comforter that Jesus talked about in the book of John that we studied last year, 
to encourage us, to convict us at times, to empower us to carry the good news of Jesus to a world that is lost. It is lost. They need Jesus all around us. And so the Holy Spirit comes. Peter gets up and preaches for about five minutes. 3,000 people move from chair one to chair two. That's a lot of chairs moving at one time. But then they had to continue to grow so they could go and become fishers of men and bear fruit. And so we see in the end of chapter 2 where they devoted themselves, devoted the word. There was a word that meant it became a commitment day after day after day to God's word, to prayer, to fellowship, to worshiping, so on and so forth, because they needed to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. And apart from those things, it's not going to happen. So they did that. Time goes on, Peter and John end up in the temple courts where a lot of the early Christians gathered because they had a Jewish background, and that's just where they went because that's where they had been going for as long as they could remember. So while they're there then, they walk by a beggar that they may have walked by before, but with new eyes because the presence of the Holy Spirit opened their eyes to see a person, not just a thing sitting there asking for alms or money, And they talked to this person. They engaged him in a relationship and that person was healed. Well, that got a crowd of a lot of lost people in this chair saying, what in the world's going on? So Peter preaches again about five minutes and another couple thousand come to Jesus. It's like, whoa, what is going on here? Move from this chair to this chair and they too had to devote themselves to the things that we talked about. That brings us up to chapter four because not only did a lot of lost people catch what was happening and realize, man, I want to believe in Jesus. I want to follow him and move over here. Now, they're not thinking chairs, but that's for the illustration purpose. But also those who would oppose the church. The church barely got started, maybe a few weeks old at the most. And we're going to see already that those who hated Jesus hate Christians too. And they would oppose it. And that brings us to chapter 4 this morning. Let's pray and ask God to be our teacher. Lord, we bow in your presence, thanking you for how much you love us and care for us. You tell us that in this world we're going to have trials and tribulations. We saw in Psalm 118 the challenges of the psalmist of of living the life that that, uh, was lived then. But also that you are faithful forever. You are faithful forever. You are the cornerstone. You are the rock of salvation, the anchor for our souls that we can build our lives on. So whatever comes in our life, whatever opposition may come our way, whatever trials or tribulations or temptations, we can stand because we have a rock-solid foundation in Jesus. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for living inside every believer. Help us to continue to progressively make changes in our lives with your help and your power so that we might mature as believers, that we might go from following you to continuing to follow you, but then to become fishers of people, to become those who bear fruit. Lord, we know that is your design, that is your will. We know that's what the early church did, and church over the years has done that not always well. We recognize that. And as our church has, at times, not always done that well, Lord, and yet you have been faithful to continue to help us make disciples for over 100 years. And so we commit ourselves to that. 
We re recommit ourselves to that, Lord, that you might continue to build your body here at this church and at the churches across our city, across our state, our land, and across the world, because your kingdom lasts forever. Teach us now, Lord, as we study together. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Any builder is going to tell you that a foundation is critical for what a building is built on. And if you look at the words of Jesus at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, particularly in Matthew's chapter 5 through 7, he says, those who build on what I have told them are like someone who have built their home on a rock, a solid foundation. So not if, but when the storms of life come, because they're going to come. That, that, is, that is almost a promise. It's going to get tough at times. The house will stand. But if we build our life on the shifting sands of the value system of the world or, uh, or, or our flesh or just whatever temptations are out there, when those storms come, we can get washed away. We found out very quickly how important a foundation is when we moved to Kansas. Uh, we had never, ever seen rain or wind or hail or lightning until we moved to Kansas. We don't have storms here. We have just like little leakage in the sky. Out there, they have storms, and they are mean. And the first time we had a real heavy storm, after we had... When we first moved to Kansas, we rented a home kind of on the edge of town. Eventually, about nine months or so, we were able to find a house we liked. We bought it, moved into town. Had a basement, and, you know, hadn't had a basement before and all those kind of things. And, of course, we had to learn when the sirens go off, you're supposed to go down, not up. Of course, everybody around our neighborhood, when the sirens would go off for the tornadoes, instead of going down to your basement, you'd come out to your French port and look around. Hey, neighbor, have you seen it yet? You know, anyway... Why do, you, why do people do that? Why did I do that? Anyway, but the first time we had a really heavy rainstorm, guess what? Our foundation leaked. We had a crack in our foundation. Fortunately, my father-in-law was a retired engineer, civil engineer. So he said, we can fix that. Of course, I was on the end of the shovel, and so he instructed me how to dig a nice trench next to my foundation we got some uh, patch that they sold at the local hardware store, patched it up, and he said, now we're really going to fix it. And we found some perforated pipe, and we made a drainage system next to the house. So not if, but when that next storm came, it would remove the water and the patch would hold. And you know what? It held for as long as we lived there. A strong foundation. We need a strong foundation in our lives because it's not if, but when the storms of life come, when the opposition comes, we have to be able to stand strong. And we won't stand strong if we don't have a firm foundation. And that foundation is found in Jesus Christ. You see, a rock-solid foundation, as we'll learn from chapter 4, provides stability during persecution. Stability during persecution. So, Peter preaches to the onlookers that are looking around, and we'll see many respond in chapter 4. But also, the priests and the captain of the temple guard. The captain of the temple guard was a very powerful person that, in a sense, ran the police system of the Jewish temple. And the Sadducees, 
The sad, the Sadducees. Remember, what's that song? The Sadducees are sad, you see, because they don't know Jesus. The Sadducees only believed in the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch. They did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. The Pharisees did. Paul was a Pharisee. That was his background. So we see later in the book of Acts where when he's on trial, he pits the Sadducees and the Pharisees against one another because he says, I'm on trial for the resurrection of the dead. And there was a group called the Sanhedrin. It was 70 member, like a Supreme Court back in that day that would deal with all of the issues of Judaism and, and kind of maintain order among the Jewish people there in Israel. And Paul knew that. He knew it very well. And so when he walks in, and we'll see this later in a book, he says, I'm on trial for the resurrection of the dead. Basically starts a fight between the two groups. And he's probably going, yeah, that's exactly what I wanted. But so the Sadducees, a very strong group, tended to be very wealthy, very prominent, had a lot of power and prestige in that, in that community. And the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. Now, very patriarchal society, and so they tended to count by, you know, when feeding of the, uh, feeding of the 5,000 men only, but then they, you can multiply that out by probably three or four. So at this point in time, the church has probably grown to, some estimates are 15 to 20,000 people just in several weeks as people move from being lost to being found and following Jesus, becoming fishers of men and then bearing fruit. The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. These were the people who were responsible for teaching the Jewish people different, different offices there. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. The high priesthood had become kind of a family affair, very powerful, very interconnected, uh, very corrupt, and so you see this kind of a relative system, in a sense, giving oversight to, uh, to Judaism at that point in time. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them, by what power or what name did you do this? In other words, how did this guy get healed? Is this some kind of a sorcery going on? What, what's happening here? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, controlled by the Holy Spirit, is another way to think of it, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called in account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is, quoting from Psalm 118 that Randy read earlier, the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. In a foundation of a building, then the cornerstone was how they figured out straight this way, straight this way, if everything connects accordingly. Jesus is that cornerstone of the foundation. He is the measurement of all truth, the way, the truth, and the life. The word became flesh. The word in Greek there means the epitome of all, everything that life represents. That's Jesus. The word became flesh. He is the cornerstone, the measuring line. 
by which we measure our lives, measure our faith, measure what is true. Salvation is found in no one else. It's interesting, the word in Greek for salvation and the word for healing is the same. Think about that. Think about that. When a person is lost, they are sick spiritually. They are dead spiritually. And it takes a powerful healer, Jesus, to bring life to someone who is dead. In a sense, bring them back from the dead. Dead spiritually. So they can have new life in Christ. So the Bible says in John 3, they can be born again. A brand new life. Because they have no life before that. They are lost in sin. Separated from God because of sin. But they can be saved. They can be healed, as Jesus says. Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men. Now, they weren't saying they were dumb. What they were saying was they weren't trained in the rabbinical schools. In other words, they knew they were fishermen. They knew they were common people. Not that they weren't intelligent, but they didn't have the formal training of the scribes and the, and the other teachers of the law. So they're thinking, where, where are they getting this stuff? How do they know this? When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. They knew then where, where this was coming from. But since, they could, but since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. The evidence was there. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin, this group of 70, and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they have performed a notable sign, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in his name. Remember our study of John, the Jewish religious leaders. Not that they were all bad people, but they were in the power they were into influence and status, and so Jesus was going against the status quo and was, was threatening their world. Their world is still being threatened now through the disciples who are filled with the Holy Spirit, God himself, and lost people are moving from here to here and away from their power and influence, and they don't like it. They don't like it. And they called him in again and commanded him not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes? To listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. And further threats, after further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. In spite of the persecution that they faced, Peter and John made it clear that their ultimate allegiance was to Jesus. You see, there's something about opposition, there's something about persecution that puts us in a position of we either really believe this stuff or we don't. I'm not saying I'm wanting persecution. I don't think we should go out and seek persecution. But in the history of the church, when the church has been the strongest, is when the church is opposed. Uh, 
A study was done a number of years ago on degrees, what they called degrees of persecution. In other words, um, all of us face some kind of persecution, but it, it kind of intensifies as time goes on, depending on where you live and the situation that you're under. There's 17 different things that they list, but the uh, beginning of it is, is, is often disapproval. Disapproval. Someone in your home, a good friend, um, teammates at school, classmates, someone you work with, someone in a neighborhood, oh, oh, you go to church. Like you've got the plague or something, you know. There's a, there's a kind of a subtle disapproval, like keep up with the times, man. Come on, this is 2019. People don't believe that stuff anymore. None of us like to hear that. But sometimes we're subjected to it. Disapproval, that's a form of persecution. Ridicule is kind of the next step up. Then it starts to become a little bit more vocal. Pressure to conform. Come on, everybody's doing it. Don't, don't be a goody two-shoes. Don't hold back. Come on, you know. That feeling of conformity to the ways of this world. Paul addresses that when he says, do not be conformed to the to the ways of this world. Don't be squeezed into its mold, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Then it goes on, and again, this is a worldwide study. Sometimes it results in a loss of educational opportunities, economic sanctions, shunning and alienation from a community, loss of employment, loss of property, physical abuse, mob violence, harassment by officials, kidnapping, forced labor, imprisonment, physical torture, murder, or execution. My friends, that's happening all over the world. Will it happen here someday? I don't know. I don't know. But we will be opposed. I think the opposition that comes in America is more through the airways of, of various media outlets saying this is the way life really should be. And if you don't believe that, then you are, something's wrong with you. Uh, you're, you're just too narrow-minded. You're just, you know, come on, open up your minds. I think it's just kind of a cultural shift and a cultural pressure that wants us to conform to the ways of this world rather than be transformed by Jesus Christ. Not that many years ago, and many of you remember this, when Nazi Germany was in uh, their heyday, we often think of the persecution then against the Jewish people, and it was certainly very intense with the concentration camps and all that happened and just the horrendous things that were done. But one of the goals of Nazi Germany was also to eradicate and eliminate Christianity. They weren't quite as overt as far as shipping people off to camps and this kind of thing. But what they did was try to take it over from within. They had people that would come to churches back in the day in Germany. They were party sympathizers. They would try to discredit. They would try to spread false teaching. They'd try to give them kind of the, the German Third Reich philosophy in a church setting, kind of a, a more of an extreme God and country type of thing. And just forget about Jesus. It's all about the Reich and the, and the Fuhrer and all those kinds of things. They tried to indoctrinate them slowly but surely through youth organizations, through a variety of means. They've, they've discovered documents from the 1940s that prove that over and over again. Opposition. Opposition. How, did, how does a church stand strong during times like this? They have to have a rock-solid foundation to have stability. 
A rock-solid foundation provides stability during persecution. It also provides boldness during opposition. When we are opposed, there is a time for boldness. There's a time to speak forth as Peter and John did. And we see that in, starting in verse 23. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer. Now, contrast the Sanhedrin, the 70 religious leaders that were supposed to be the spiritual leaders of the day, when they were faced with Peter and John, what did they do? They had a meeting. Nothing wrong with meetings, but that's all they did. Peter and John go back to their people, and what do they do? They prayed. They prayed, and they unleashed the power of God. Prayer is critical, absolutely critical for our lives personally and corporately. When we don't pray, we don't grow. When we don't pray, we don't stand strong. When we don't pray, we will not be bold during opposition. We will shrink away from whatever comes because we will not have the power of the Holy Spirit when we do not pray because that's one of the ways we are filled with Him. We acknowledge in prayer that we need His power. We submit to Him because it's all about control. Who's in charge of your life? We have to daily make that decision. Lord, fill me, Holy Spirit. I release myself to you to be used by you as a living witness. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage in Psalm 2? And the people's plot invade. And the kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in the city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and your will had decided beforehand should happen. God's sovereignty was right in the middle of that. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and to perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God boldly. Earthquakes were a common way of God confirming his presence in the Old Testament. And for this group of people who still had a, a certain maybe Old Testament um, feel to them with their, with their heritage, perhaps God chose to do the same thing to let them know I'm with you. I'm on your side. Dr. Warren Wearsby in his commentary on the book of Acts makes an observation about the way the people prayed. He said they did not pray to have their circumstances changed or their enemies put out of office. Rather, they asked God to empower them to make the best use of their circumstances and to accomplish what he had already determined. This was not fatalism, but faith in the Lord of history, who had a perfect plan and always victorious. They asked for divine enablement, not escape, and God gave them the power that they needed. Psalm chapter 2, which the believers were quoting in a sense as they prayed, goes like this. Why do the nations conspire? And the people's plot in vain, the kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. 
The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron, will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. I don't think we should necessarily, you know, Sometimes these songs are called imprecatory psalms. It's like, go get them, God, tear them up, beat them up, you know, that kind of stuff. I mean, that might feel good, but I don't think that should dominate our prayer life necessarily. <laughs> I felt pretty good reading it just now. But, uh, you know, we, we face different t- types of opposition. And I think the people then, as they face that, as they realize, wow, we've had favor with the people, but all of a sudden the tide was beginning to turn a little bit. The religious leaders didn't like what they were seeing. Their world was being threatened by this growing church of now fifteen to 20,000 people. They thought, we better put an end to this. But I think the people then and people today now, we can find comfort in knowing that there is no government on this earth at any level of government, in any nation that even comes close to having the power and the authority of Jesus Christ. We can have confidence in that. So when things don't look good, when things aren't going our way, when we're concerned about how things are going, maybe we ought to read Psalm 2 now and then and remember who our God is. Yes, he's a God of love. Yes, he's a God of mercy. But he's also a God of wrath and righteousness and judgment and every knee will bow. And every tongue confess someday that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. Whether they leave this chair or not, they will bow someday. Now, we don't need to pray that in in a mean spirit, but more with confidence, knowing that our faith is rock solid. So whatever we face, we can have boldness during opposition. Not in a cocky way, but in a confident way of who God is. When communism came to northern China, although it was a very difficult thing and still is a challenge to live under, for the sake of the church, it did wonders. The church in China prior to communism, coming to it in the early parts of the last century, was a church of just a few hundred thousand. Ah, That's a pretty good chunk of people. But in a nation the size of China, that's pretty small. Communism moves in and decides the church is worthless, no good. So they start tearing them down, they take crosses down, they start to imprison people, they start to do what communist countries do typically to Christians. So the church, in a sense, went underground. Well, when in recent years, as communism has changed somewhat in China, studies are beginning to show that now the church has multiplied from lost people who realize communism is not the way to go, there's got to be something better than that, who chose to follow Jesus. And then began that multiplication process of becoming fishers of men and bearing fruit and keeping that process going. The church now has multiplied to millions upon millions of Christians. Communism couldn't stop the church. 
Communism could say all the things it wanted to about the church and how weak it was and how bad it was for the country. But the communist leaders never read Psalm 2, I doubt. The communist leaders never read the Gospels, never really understood who this Jesus really was. And the church has multiplied in China over and over and over. A rock-solid foundation provides stability during persecution, but also boldness during opposition. And finally, power during trials. Verse 32, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. This is not a proof text for socialism or communism. Those are forced things in societies. This was a voluntary wanting to help one another out. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them that all... at work in them all, that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them and brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, submitting it to them. Use it as you will. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, and we'll see Barnabas more throughout the book, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned, and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now that does raise a question. Levites weren't supposed to own land, so how did he own land? What, what did he do? Well, there's several different possible interpretations of that. One, because he was from Cyprus, he may have had land in Cyprus, and maybe the rules were different there, so he sold that. Could have been that he inherited land through his wife, and could have been that they chose to sell that. Or it could have been they just kind of bent the rules and he bought land anyway. I don't know. (laughs) But the point is, Joseph, Barnabas, sold a piece of property. And that puts us on the stage of chapter 5 where we will see Ananias and Sapphira. And many of you know the story there. But during those times of trial, as the people built on the Lord Jesus, as they had this rock-solid foundation, they had power during these trials to live out their faith in the midst of this new community called the church. The early believers modeled the importance of supporting and caring for one another during difficult times as a a sign of God's powerful grace. Back to the church in China. In a book called China, The Emerging Challenge, author Paul Kaufman talks about in 1942 there was a tremendous drought in northern China. Many of the crops were failing and people were beginning to starve and and the government felt a certain sense of, well, I guess we better help out. So they they tried to help out and even some foreign aid came in. But the church in that part of China, which was called the Jesus Family, refused to take the aid. They said, we will take care of our own. And not only our own, but we will care for those around us. And so they began to farm and to pray, and their land produced enough. Let me make sure I get this right. They could feed up to 500 people from 43 acres of land. The best the communists could do, one family per one acre. You think the Lord was blessing that effort? Of course it was. And so part of the growth of the church in that time was their generosity in reaching out to one another, but also to the surrounding community saying, please come, 
We will take care of you during this very difficult time. And so lost people moved from here to here because they were loved into the kingdom through a simple act of kindness. Here's what one of the believers said, or here's what uh, Paul Kaufman said in his book. Those foreign churches would have robbed us of our anchor. Not that they didn't appreciate the efforts of maybe even churches like ours that sent aid during that time. It is our financial needs that drives us to our needs and forces us to cry out to him. What a wonderful picture of a church that was under pressure, and yet in that pressure found power during that time of trial. Geologist James Clark had a similar observation in the Soviet Union when the communism dissolved there and and things started falling apart. He went in to address some of the churches that had been suffering during those times. And he talked about, and he used an illustration to try to encourage the church. He said that clay is actually composed of many microscopic clay mineral crystals, which not even a light microscope can see. He says, but under pressure, the clay minerals are not crushed or made smaller. Rather, they grow larger. The minerals change into a new, larger biotype grain that forms slate found on many homes. With even more pressure, the mineral becomes even larger, and some are transformed into garnets, a semi-precious gem. He goes on to say that the way that the pressure and the rock formations work, the metamorphic rock story doesn't even end there with the garnets. With even more pressure applied, a new mineral forms called staterolite. The name is from two Greek words meaning stone cross. The twin variety forms deep under the high mountains in the shape of a cross, a reminder of Christ's ultimate suffering for us all. And in that context, he was able to encourage the believers of Russia who were like gems under the pressure of communism but came out shining as examples of power during trial. Believers today, us today, still need to build our lives on a rock-solid foundation. Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. He says, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We will be. It's not if, it's when and how it will happen. It may start a progression, as I read earlier. I don't know what the future holds. But we know who holds the future, and he's rock solid. His name is Jesus Christ. And so we are called then to pray for fellow believers all over the world in the difficult areas of the world, one of which is India. It's now number 10 on the top 50 list of persecuted areas in the nation. We have a team going over there in January. I'll be with them. I'm planning to come back. <laughs> the danger really isn't for foreigners, it's for the church there. And the persecution is increasing. As many of you have gone over the years, you've heard more and more reports of the persecution under a radical Hindu government. We're also called to pray for a rock-solid foundation in our own faith at our church so that we can have stability during persecution, boldness during opposition, and power during trials. Let me invite our worship team to come up as we sing our closing song. Let me invite you to stand. Let's pray together. There may be something on your heart or mind this morning you'd like prayer for. I'm not sure 
you know, it could be something I touched on in my message or just something you're carrying with you. I want to encourage you to come and feel the freedom to allow our couple to pray for you in our prayer corner. We are called to be the church, the church in America, different than China, Russia, and other parts of the world. And yet we will face difficult times here that are in some ways more subtle, but we still need to stand strong on that rock-solid foundation. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the time you've blessed us with this morning. Thank you for each one here. Help us to continue to build our lives on the solid foundation of faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, if there's anyone here that is still wondering, still wondering if they should follow Jesus, would you encourage them, help them to take that step of following you, of believing in Jesus and finding in you eternal life. Help us to live lives worthy of the gospel as we go as your people, your missionaries, wherever we go. Lord, help us to build relationships with those who don't know Jesus so that they too might have the opportunity to follow and believe and become fishers of men and bear the fruit that you call us to bear. Thank you, Father, for your church. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.